0: Last week, I promised you we'd kind of jump into the book of, of Romans, so let me kind of put this in, into perspective for you. Um, remember where we're at, we've got John here, this is the end of the Revelation, and he's being shown some things by an angel, all right? So throughout the Revelation, this is the case, it's always an angel that's, that's explanatory, that's saying, let me show you what this is and what this means. In this case, the angel takes him up to a high mountain. Last week I made kind of the observation for you that throughout the Bible it's up on high mountains that we begin to really understand what God is doing in our midst. Uh, I always like to think of it this way. We, we live our lives so often right at the end of our nose. We wake up in the morning and what do we think about What's my to-do list? What have I got to do this week? What you know? What are what are all the things, my projects, and so forth? And we sometimes forget. Wait a minute. Do you know that there's a God that on this day um, is interested in only one thing? On His to-do list, there's only one thing, and that one thing consists of the multiple billion five-plus billion people that do not know him as Savior and Lord who Many will of them will die today thousands upon thousands and apart from acknowledging him as Lord and Savior apart from faith They'll be separated for him from him for an eternity And so sometimes we wake up in the morning We've got all these important things and we forget wait a minute the most important thing in any given day is just start off that day and say god today show me how you want to use me in your work of bringing people to know you and expect it i just encourage people to expect that when you come up onto that high mountain you really begin to see what god is doing and why he's doing it it's for the sake of those who don't know him as lord and savior here we're taken to the end where we get to see this almost um, wedding-like picture of the bride uh, of Jesus coming to to meet him, um, coming down the aisle as to, as to meet him. Who is that bride? Well, when you read these words, one of the questions that gets raised up has to do with, with this bride um, and with the question of Israel. So let, let's just read the words again, verse number... Uh, verses number nine and ten. It says then came one of the seven angels, who had the seven bulls, spoke to me, saying, Come, and I'm going to show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain. He showed me the holy city, Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper clearest crystal. Okay. I want you to stop there. We're seeing this city, Jerusalem, coming down from heaven. Well, what is, what is that city? And um, why, why is it Jerusalem? What, what does it have to do with, with, with the, the Jews particularly? Okay, So I'm going to take you over to a couple of places, one, one New Testament one Old Testament, that I think kind of give you this picture of who... Who really is the bride of Christ? Who is Jerusalem? What is this city that's coming down? Because it's not actually a city. It's not like there's a city dropping out of heaven. It's people. And it's people that form Yerushalam. Remember what Jerusalem means. Yahweh Shalom, the peace of God. This, these people are at Yahweh Shalom. They are at peace with God. Who are they? Who is Israel? Go over to Romans Um, chapter 11, and take a look at some words that I've always looked upon as um, kind of core to understanding the relationship that we have as Gentiles engrafted into that branch that was initially um, Israel, okay? So Paul is writing, and of course... What, what's happening here in Romans chapter 11 is he's trying to answer some real, rather difficult questions. Wherever Paul went, remember, he, he's a Jew, and yet he's preaching Christ. Wherever he went, remember, the Jews would follow him and would typically be ahead of him, waiting for him, to do one of two things, either to try to kill him or to raise up false charges against him so that he could become imprisoned, all right? Here in Romans 11, what what Paul is doing is answering one of those tough questions that that Jews are asking. They're saying, well, wait a minute. Aren't we the chosen nation? Aren't we that Jerusalem that comes down? At the end, won't it be us, the Jews, who will dwell with you forever? Remember when Jesus Christ was born, that's what the the Jews expected. They expected a, a, a Savior who would come into the world and would do what? re-establish a Davidic kingdom here on earth, okay? Well, when you read the Revelation, you, you think to yourself, you know what? You got the earth part right, but it'll be a new earth. And it won't just be Jews, right? It'll be all those who have faith in Jesus Christ. And that's really what Paul is doing here in Romans 11, is answering that question, who is Israel? Some of this is thick stuff, so kind of pay attention as you go through it. Chapter 11, verse, verse 1, I ask them, has God rejected his people? That's what the Jews were asking Paul. What are you saying? That, that, that God rejected us? We're the Jews. We, we received the covenant promise through Abraham. Are you telling us now that God rejected us? Paul's answer is what? By no means. I myself am an Israelite. I'm a descendant, a blood descendant of Abraham. I'm a member of the tribe of Benjamin. Paul always um, has, has this, this character about him where whenever you watch him moving about Asia Minor, he's always hungry to start, start his evangelistic work by reaching out to the Jews. Why? Because he is one. And that's what he's saying to them. No, God hasn't rejected his people. But guess what, Israel? Israel? We've kind of gotten it wrong. What is Israel? Okay. So verse number two, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Don't you know what the scripture says of Elijah? How he appeals to God against Israel. Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars. I alone am left and they seek my life what is God's reply to him? No, I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So what's Paul doing here? He takes a little piece of history to answer the question that's being asked. The question is what? Has God rejected us as Jews? No. He's saying, but guess what he has done? He's done the same thing that he did at the time of Elijah. And he takes us back to that moment in history. I think we we shared this story last week where Elijah the prophet, right, is stacked up against the prophets of Baal. And of course, we have that great scene where where God consumes the sacrifice of Elijah and the prophets of Baal are are overcome and and killed. So it's interesting, at the end of that story, you have Elijah the prophet who is almost angry with God, almost upset with him. And he's standing before God and he's saying to God, God, I'm the only one left, right? I'm the only really, the, the, the only person here on, on earth that really truly believes in you. And what is God's reply back to Elijah? No, in fact, I have set apart for myself 7,000 who have not bowed their knee to Baal. I always find that interesting that it's 7,000. Why is that significant? Here we got the Jesus number again, seven, right? Times 10, times 10, times 10. So you have the holy number. I've set aside people who have not bowed their knee. In other words, I would say it this way. There is, even in that Old Testament period, a group of, of Israel who have lost their way, most of them. They're no longer followers of God. But there's a remnant Always a remnant, that group of people who God has set aside for himself who have not bowed their their knee. So why, why is Paul using that example? He's really saying, if you go back in history, what you're going to find is that throughout history, Israel as a nation oftentimes rejected God. Do you think that God's just going to say, well, hey, you rejected me, but now at the end, I'm just going to restore all of you? No no that's not the picture you get there's a group that that rejected him there's a group that did not bow their knee to false gods who belonged to him so did god reject all of the jews no in fact i think one of the more beautiful stories uh, of christianity uh lived out here in america today is oftentimes invisible to us um when you meet Jews who are converted to to Christianity, many of them will become part of what we call messianic Jewish Christian congregations. And I always encourage Christians. if you find a if you find a messianic church in your vicinity, it's kind of it's kind of fun on a particular celebration, you know, pick one of them out, Rosh Hashanah atonement. Um, Pick pick one of them out and go. And as a Christian, what you'll do is you'll walk into a community. It's a church just like this church, except they have retained all of the old Jewish holidays. So if we were a Messianic congregation, at Passover, at Pesach, we'd celebrate the Passover. At Rosh Hashanah, we would celebrate the beginning of the new year. But they've taken all of those celebrations and they've turned them so that you celebrate Jesus Christ in the midst of them all. And so some of the more beautiful congregations, I think, in America today still are invisible to most of us. Most of us don't even know they exist. But they're Jewish Christians who who recognize that Jesus is the completion of everything that the Jews celebrated for many, many years. <clears throat> this is what Paul is saying. He's saying that today, even today, amongst the Jews, there are those who have been converted and are now followers of Jesus Christ. Verse number five, he uses the term, he says, so too at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace. Remember the word remnant means what? Like a torn off piece. So there's a piece of Jerusalem that's been set aside for my purposes. Verse six, but if it is by grace, it's no longer the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened as it is written. Okay? So what did God do with Israel? Ever ask yourself that question? There's a remnant, right, of people that are believers in Jesus. But what did he do with Israel? You, you meet many Jews today. I don't know if you know many Jews today. But if you get to know Jews, for the vast, the vast majority of them are there There is no resurrection. there is Live to the best of your ability today and then die. That's it. <clears throat> and you find yourself saying, how did you get from being this people of God that were called out of all the nations to belong to, belong to God, to this place today where, where you, you, you go to Israel and you visit it and you have a Jewish guide and many of those guides will tell you, I'm not a believer. I'm a historian, I can tell you the stories. I don't believe it. And you think, well, wh- how did this happen? Look at these words. God gave them A spirit of stupor. Eyes that would not see, ears that would not hear, down to this very day. And David says, Let their table become like a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. This is Paul, and he's actually speaking to Jews. Which, by the way, made him a very popular person. (laughs) This made the Jews happy. They went, oh, what a wonderful, let's say that again. No, they were angry with him. They're like, what are you saying? Well, what he's saying is significant. He's saying that God hardened the hearts of the Jews. I think it's probably one of the hardest things to understand in all the Scripture. Because, and I need you to see this, God hardened the hearts of the Jews. We don't like that. Most of us would say, well, no, well, no, 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 no. The Jews, they, they harden their hearts. No, this is God does it. He gives them over to this spirit. And there's a hardening of their hearts. The rest were hardened as it is written. What's going on there? Um, Pastor Mike and I were talking a little bit about this this week. And uh, I'm going to let him get into it. Uh, on the 17th, a little bit deeper in the message, but you know, I always like to say there's two words that have 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 kind of helped guide me through some of these acts on the part of God that are confusing to us. And, and the two words that that have always been my guideposts are, are the words uh, discipline and punishment. And they're two different things. Discipline is where God sees a person or a group of persons that are moving away from him. And he, he causes or allows, either way, hard things to happen in that person's or those person's lives in order to bring people back to himself. Okay? So, so there's times in my life where something hard is happening. And, and I'm asking myself the question, is, is, this, is this discipline? Is it a test? Sometimes God puts us to a test, Right? But I always know in those hard moments God's at work and He will strengthen you if you will hear Him, right? That's discipline. It's it's intention is to bring you back to Him. Now, there can come in a person's life this point where you commit what the Bible calls the unforgivable sin. No human being will ever see this and only God can determine it. But you, you get to this place in your life where you, you push away discipline and you push away discipline and you push away discipline, the Spirit is trying to call you back and you refuse to come back. I'm going to live the way I want to live. I'm going to be God in my life. There can come this point in time where you push the Spirit away so often that you commit the unforgivable sin. There is a literal rejection of the Spirit of God. I don't think that 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 simply means that we wake up one morning and say, oh, I reject the Holy Spirit. No, I think it's more subtle than that. And I'll tell you why I say that. Because on the last day, when Jesus comes for his bride, he tells us there'll be many who are, what, standing there crying out to him, and what do they call him? Lord. Many will cry out on that day, oh, Lord, Lord, my, my, my groom has come, and and they really believe that. Hey, yeah, I'm, I'm, yeah, oh, you bet. And what does he say? I don't know you. And I believe many of those have committed that. They've come to that place where I've rejected and rejected and rejected and rejected the Spirit of God and His movements in my life that I no longer am, hear these words, I no longer am redeemable. Now, <clears throat> the way we operate as Christians Every single person we see, every single person we see, I don't care if they're an ISIS terrorist <laughs> uh, or, or the juvenile delinquent next door, right? Every single person that we see, we should treat as redeemable. We should. We should never say, well, hey, you've done it. You've committed the unfree." We can't see that. So we operate on the basis of what? Discipline. God is trying to bring this person back to himself. But what happens when I commit the unforgivable sin and I am no longer redeemable? Second word, punishment. Punishment is an act of God in the life of one who is no longer redeemable. He hands us over to Satan himself. You now belong to him. And what Paul is saying here has that weight to it. No wonder the Jews hated him. Because what he's really saying is, we rejected and we rejected and we rejected and we rejected. And so here's what God did. He handed over Israel, this body, the very body that he called out to belong to him, handed over to the spirit of stupor, eyes that no longer see, ears that no longer hear. And when the Jews heard Paul say that, they went, whoa. And here's what he's in essence saying. What is Israel? Is it made up of Jews? Yes, in part. Which Jews? The remnant. Those who trust in Jesus Christ. That's, that's part of that city coming down that we see. That's part of Jerusalem. The other part of Jerusalem are the ingrafted branches. Gentiles. That's you and me. Pick that up in verse 11. He says, so I I ask this, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Those words I have underlined in my scripture for for a particular reason. Kind of kind of fits this weekend, too. When the Gentiles begin to receive the gospel um, in the New Testament period, the response of the Jews was what? Hey, you good. All right. No, what was their response? You're stinking Gentiles. You don't belong in the house. You're not Jerusalem. You're not Israel. You're not a part of us, right? God says, "Oh no, no, no! You've forgotten. You've forgotten that when I turned, when I created you as Israel, I created you to be a nation that what? That reached the other nations. That brought other nations to me. You stopped doing that. You stopped bringing other nations to me, and you made yourselves exclusive. We're Israel." And now I'm bringing Gentiles into the kingdom, right? And what are you doing? You're still the same stubborn people. Stinking Gentiles. Don't belong to the house. He says, well, I want to use those Gentiles to try to, to, try to stir up within, within those who are still redeemable, back to our discipline word, a jealousy, a sense of, wait, wait what's God doing here? How can those people come in the house? I, that's what God is trying to do, is stir up that sense of jealousy. Let me tell you why I have this underlined in my scriptures. It's just, it's I don't want, I don't want to equate America to Israel. I don't think we should do that. I don't think it's right to do that. We're we're two different things. Israel was a nation created to be under the covenant, that body of people that God would work exclusively through to draw people to himself, right? America is not that. America is a is a nation that was founded upon. What? A, a belief that without God, we as a country cannot cannot prosper, right? That's America, okay? Does God work through America? This is what's interesting to me. I grew up, when I grew up, we would talk a little bit about mission work, okay? So some of you are, are at least my age, and um, a couple of you have me by one or two years, right? OK, so you, you get, you'll relate to us when I grew up in Sunday school, when, when we would have somebody come into our Sunday school class and talk about, maybe you should get involved in mission work, what pictures came to our minds? What did we think? What, what, what would we think about? I should become a missionary. What, what would that mean? OK? Yeah, there's a, there's a song I used to sing it. Um, Please don't send me to Africa. (laughs) I don't have what it takes, right? Um, Yeah, Africa. I mean, I remember Africa. No, I don't want to go to Africa. I mean, I had those National Geographics. I look at those. No, I don't want to go to Africa. China, those kind of places. That's what you thought of when you would say missionary, right? Now, here's what's kind of interesting. Today, there are people waking up in Africa. Where Christianity, let's just take Lutherans, where Lutheranism is much, 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 much larger than it is in the United States. And so there are little kids waking up in Africa today and their teacher is saying, we need missionaries. Where are they thinking of going? America. Now read those words again. Rather their trespass, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Sometimes I wonder if God doesn't do some of that in the midst of a body of people like this country. He sends us now people who we said, but wait a minute, we, we, we're the missionaries, we come to you. They go, oh, no, you're a godless country. You're, you're a godless people. And we need to come to bring you Jesus Christ. And so when I look at these words, they astoundingly remind me that history just does what? Just repeats itself over and over and over. The whole point of it is who is Israel? It's not the Jews and it's not the Gentiles. It's both, and it always has been. It's always anyone, all people, who do what? Who have faith in Jesus Christ as their Lord. And their Savior. And so, what I reject, and I'll just say this as plainly as I can, are all of these books that get written from a Zionistic standpoint that say, well, when the end comes, here comes Jerusalem down, and what that means is God is just going to restore the Jews. And uh, on new earth, the Jews are going to have a special place in God's kingdom, and they're going to rule, and the Gentiles will be kind of secondary to that. We, we come through them, we're the grafted end branches. I reject that entirely. Why? Because all along, it's never been about your, your, your bloodline. All of our bloodlines go back to one place, the garden. We're born and sent. We're Adam's kids, right? When we become Christians, we get a blood transfusion. And so now we're under the blood of Jesus Christ. If you're under the blood of Adam, apart from Jesus Christ, you 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 are outside of the kingdom of God. If you are under the blood of Jesus Christ, you are part of what is being watched by John when he's up on that mountain and the angel says, "There's the city Jerusalem. Who is it? It's people." It's the Gentiles and the Jews, all of those from all nations who have bowed their knee and said, "Jesus Christ is my Savior and my Lord," and it is only through that faith that we are able to, to call Him our Groom, and we are in turn called His Bride. And so, I really think I think that uh, Romans 11 is just such a, a a key foundational scripture for recognizing what. John is seeing as he sees Jerusalem coming down out of, out of the heavens, okay? Why are we describing it as a city? Well, it's, just, it's meant to just be some symbolic, right? It's a city, but it's a, it's a body of, of people, even as we're going to be looking at the, the person that we're, we're marrying is the person of Jesus Christ. Let me show you that in the Old Testament. Come over to Zechariah chapter 2. Zechariah two. You know, Zechariah and Ezekiel both kind of give us some images that are helpful again in understanding what, what Jerusalem really is, this bride coming down out of heaven. Zechariah, uh, in chapter 2, kind of has an interesting picture that uh, I kind of like. Here, here's, here's his words. Chapter 2, beginning verse 4, he says, I lifted up my eyes, and I saw, and behold, remember Zachariah is receiving a vision here uh, just as, as much as John is in the Revelation. He says, I, I saw a man with a measuring line in his hand. And then I said to him, where, where are you going? He said to me, to measure Jerusalem. To see what its width and what its length. And behold, the angel who talked to me, came forward and another angel came forward to meet him and and said to him, run and say to that young man, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as villages without walls because of the multitude of people and livestock in it. And I will be to her a wall of fire all around, declares the Lord, and I will be in the glory of her midst. Okay, So, here you have this picture in Zechariah of God being described as the walls the walls of Jerusalem the protector of Jerusalem. So again, kind of put these pieces together. Throughout the Old and the New Testament, these images become clear when you get to the end of the book Revelation that what God is doing is he's forming a people for himself to have a relationship with them. That will go on for eternity. Where will that relationship take place? Not in heaven. Don't get stuck there. A lot of people go, Oh, I'm going to die. I'm going to go to heaven. I'm going to be in heaven forever. I'm like, No, you're not. If you're going to die. Your soul will go to heaven. Your soul will be in an intermediate state with God in heaven, bodiless, until the day of the resurrection. And on that day, your body and soul will come together. The earth that we're on right now will be destroyed. So will the atmosphere that we're in us and what we would call the universe, destroyed like that, replaced with a new heaven and a new atmosphere that will be different from this one. We'll show you that in a minute. We'll have eternity with him. He is our protector, our defender, our groom. All of those images are coming together in the book of Revelation. You see them early on in the Old Testament, and they track all the way through the New Testament. All right, come back over to Revelation. Let's kind of pick pick back on on verse number 12 here in uh, chapter 21. As he's looking at the city now, which we know are actually people, he describes it this way. He says it it had a great high wall. Remember Zechariah just told us that the, the actual walls of Jerusalem are God himself. But it had 12 gates. And at the gates were twelve angels. And on the gates were the names of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel inscribed. On the east three gates, on the north three, on the south three, on the west three. And the wall of the city had twelve foundations and on them the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. So the point being, you have tribes represented on the twelve 12 gates, right? That's all the believers in the Old Testament era. You have the apostles' names on the 12 foundations that make up the city. All of the people in the New Testament era. So really, it's again, it's just a symbolic picture of all those people in both the Old Testament era and the New Testament era who come to trust Jesus Christ as their Savior. Verse 15, And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold, of matches up a little bit with Zechariah. He was measuring the city and its gates and its walls. The city lies four square, its length is the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod 12,000 stadia. Okay, so what you're getting is a picture of a, of a city that is the same width, length, height okay when you multiply it all together you get 12,000 once again symbolic length times width times height 12,000 is 12 (coughs) times 10 tens okay 10 tens is what can't get more perfect than that 10 is the Yahweh number 10 tens absolutely perfect 12 the apostolic number, and the number of tribes. So all of the tribes of God, all of the people who belong to God, are coming into relationship with God. Don't try to make these numbers literal. In other words, if you say, well, the new earth is going to be 12,000 stadia, what, what, by the way, would that be uh, 12,000 stadia in terms of miles? Technically, (laughs) 1,380. Approximately. People say 1,200, but 1,380 miles. No, the new earth is not going to be 1,380 miles. Okay, it's a picture. Why, why that perfect square? Okay, we probably don't get this, but if we were, if we were Hebrews hearing these words, uh, we would recognize that if we walked into the temple of God, the Solomit temple, and we went into the Holy of Holies, the place where God dwells, it is a <laughs> perfect square. Okay. So what you have is a picture of this angel that says, let's go ahead and measure Jerusalem. What he's doing is measuring people. And he's saying, how big will heaven be? How big will new earth be? How many people will be on it? If I ask a Jehovah's Witness that, what's their answer? 144,000, right? Someone was telling me they just had a Jehovah's Witness to their house recently. I forget which one of you told me that. Told me they shot him. I'm like, what, really? No. No, they didn't tell me that. No, they didn't tell me that. But I I will tell you this. Every time a Jehovah's Witness comes to my house, my very favorite question for the Jehovah's Witnesses is, well, how many people are going to be on this new earth? Because they at least least got this right. They do this better than Christians. They know there's a new earth. They're like, yeah, there's going to be a new earth. For Jehovah's Witnesses, what happens is when you die, you're gone. There there is no more you. There's not heaven with souls in it. You just die, you're gone. Then they believe when when the resurrection happens, it's actually a recreation. That you're recreated if you were a witness to Jehovah, right? If you fulfilled the law. And so they believe you've got now 144,000 people dwelling on this new earth that are going to rule the new earth. So my favorite question for Jehovah's Witnesses is this. Are you one of the 144,000? To this day, I've never had a single Jehovah's Witness answer that question, yes. They're, they're too humble. They would say, they would say well, I, I can't, I'm not able to say that. This is, this is what I want you to do next time you have Jehovah's Witnesses. Smile. Don't forget to smile. It's bad if you don't smile. Smile. Smile and say to them, I am. It will freak them out. And then they're like, you're, I mean, it really does. It messes with their mind because you're, you're proclaiming with certainty your salvation. And in Jehovah's Witnesses, in, in any religion, There is no certainty of salvation in no religion. Only in Christianity can you be certain of your salvation. Why? Because it's about a promise. It's not about you. It's not about what you do. It's about what God has done. And so when you're looking at this earth, it's not like God is measuring it and saying, well, there's 144,000. It's a symbol, right, that's saying 12 times 10 times 10. All right, so 12 entering into relationship. The body of people who believed in Jesus Christ entering into relationship with him on this new earth. The numbers are not meant to be literally understood, but symbolically, okay? Um, Verse 17, it says, he also measured its walls. Once again, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement, okay? 144, 12 times 12. Right, So all of these numbers are just adding up to point to you and I, followers of Jesus Christ, Old and New Testament, coming into relationship with God. Verse 18 kind of furthers that. It says, The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold, clear like glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first... Jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth barrel, the ninth topaz, tenth chrysoprase. You know, I've always I think sometimes it'd be fun just to walk into like one of these K's jewelers and say, "Do you guys got chrysoprase?" Be like, "No." Be like, "What's wrong with you?" It's a 10th jewel. It's got to be a good jewel if it's a 10th jewel. The 11th is jacinth, and the 12th is amethyst. 12 jewels. Who who are Who is God's jewel? You are. Who is our jewel? God. Do, do these stones, by the way, remind you of anything you've already read in the book of Revelation? Because they should. If you go back over to chapter 4, verse 3, Remember very early on when we were reading the Revelation, we were looking at God himself. Remember John had had, uh, had had looked, he says, I looked, there was a door standing open in heaven. It's one of his first looks into heaven. And he says, the first voice which I heard speaking like a trumpet said, come up here and I'll, I'm going to show you what must take place. I was once in the spirit and a throne stood in heaven. The one seated on the throne had this appearance. Jasper, carnelian, around the throne, a rainbow that had the appearance of emerald, and now around the throne, 24 thrones, 12 times 12. Seated on the thrones, 24 elders, 12, 12. Clothed in white garments, golden crowns upon their head. See the similarity there? Why? Because it's, it's meant to be that. It's meant to say, here at the beginning of the book of Revelation, now we're at the end of the book of Revelation. What are we seeing? We're seeing what God and His people joined together. And then my favorite one, verse 21. And at the 12 gates were 12 pearls. Each of the gates was made of a single pearl. And on the street, pure gold, transparent as glass, okay? Sometimes I'll hear people talk about heaven that way. They'll be like, well, when we get to heaven, streets are going to be made out of gold. And um, I'm like, no, <clears throat> no, 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 no. no. You're not going to be driving around in heaven on some Ferrari thing on streets of gold. <clears throat> that is not going to happen. Sorry to disappoint you, Bob. I know you wanted a Ferrari when you get to heaven, but it ain't going to happen, all right? Um, Again, it's just meant to be symbolic. It's meant to to present a picture to us and not really a picture of a place. Don't think of heaven as a place. It's meant particularly to present a picture of heaven as a person, namely the person of Jesus Christ with whom we have a perfect relationship. Who is the pearl? Remember what Matthew said? All the way back in Matthew chapter 13. You remember these words. Matthew was writing one day. He's telling all these parables. These are parables of Jesus. And he finally gets to this beautiful little parable in the 45th verse of chapter 13. And in that, that few words, he says something that should never go out of our minds. He says again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. Who on finding one pearl, and there were 12 gates, and each gate was made of one pearl. Who on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Who is the pearl? It's Jesus Christ. And so when you, when you say to somebody, I'm going to give you some words that are offensive in our world today, offensive even amongst church people not you, but broadly speaking. When I say to people, here's the picture John receives of eternity. It's like a city, and it's got these gates. And the only way into the city is through the gate. And that gate is made up of a pearl. And that pearl is Jesus Christ. And he said it to his disciples this way, and no one enters except through me. Those words have become offensive. In our world today, if I stand up and say that on television, people go, oh, you're offending the Muslims. You're saying that the Muslims, that's not a way in? Oh, you're offending the, the Buddhists. You're telling them that this is the only way. I'm saying, yes, I'm telling you that there is one way in into the presence and relationship with God that'll take place on this new earth forever and ever. And it is only through Jesus Christ, period. And um, if that offends the world, so be, so be it. Because it's the exact picture that John is seeing. And so when we talk about the pearly gates, we're talking about Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord God.